Well, good morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity, the privilege to worship alongside of you all, to bring God's word before us this morning. Our passage today is from Psalm chapter 73. I'm going to read through the whole psalm. It's a long one. Get ready. As you find that psalm this morning, my name, like Ed said, is Chris. I'm a student at Westminster, uh, and I'm an intern of the South Coast Presbytery. I am incredibly grateful to be with you. Would you listen to God's word now? The psalmist writes, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken, rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray as a people who recognize our need for you. Recognize for our need to understand what you are giving to us this morning, your word, may your spirit illuminate our hearts, help make clear to us what we need to hear this morning. Father, help me to speak clearly what you have for us. Help us to be prepared this morning, to be reoriented from seeing things 
in such a linear perspective that drives us to doubt. Help us to be reoriented away from that to see you, your will, Lord, how you see things and the goodness, the truth that you have for us. We pray for that this morning. Amen. Well, again, thank you so much for letting me be with you all. Uh, I grew up in Southern California. I've driven by Las Vegas numerous times. This is actually only my second time being here. A uh, little shocking, maybe. One of the things that means is most of my exposure to Vegas is through media, through other sources. When I think of Las Vegas, I tend to immediately think about the Steven Soderbergh Oceans movies, especially 11 and 13. That's where my mind goes to. Now hear me. I know that there is so much more depth, complexity to you all than the caricatures that might be in that movie. Uh, nevertheless, that's where my mind goes. I love the soundtrack in that movie. There is something about when I hear Claire de Lune uh, that teleports me to the front of the Bellagio and the fountains. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Every time I hear Frank Sinatra's This Town, I see fireworks over the strip. There's something about music. There's something about music that implants, that tethers images, emotions, thoughts to our minds and to our hearts. One person said, music touches us where words alone cannot. That rings so true to me. It probably does to you too. I bring this up because it's important as we approach the Psalms to remember that the Psalms genuinely are songs. The Psalm writer this morning, our psalmist, a man named Asaph, he is a musician, he is a songwriter, and as songs tend to do, he communicates something to us in an incredibly emotionally broad way. This man is bearing his soul before us. You see that right out the gate. I am despairing. I am angering. Uh, to the point of envy, he says. And by the end of this song, there's this radical transformation. He is praising the Lord God. What is the theme of this song? What is the story that runs through it? It's this. This psalm is a psalm a song about doubt and the journey from doubt towards faith. Uh, doubt is an incredibly complex topic. It is something that can be so difficult to discuss, so difficult to be willing to admit that you might experience, uh, to admit, uh, do I really trust God's goodness? To say that out loud, is God really true in these moments? It sounds treasonous sometimes. And yet, it's something that each and every one of us engages, is frustrated by, encounters at some point. Uh, so often we do not have the framework, uh, the plan, the process for how to deal with those doubts. And so what do we do? We boil them up. We press them down. We put them in this bottle and we contain them until finally they explode out of us. I am relatively young, I think, still. Uh, and yet I have so many friends who have stepped away from the faith uh, because as they encounter those kinds of doubts, 
as they began to see the world and say, is God really good? Is he really true in light of what I'm seeing? They had no framework for how to deal with those thoughts until finally they left. Maybe you don't feel steeped in doubt this morning. Uh, Maybe you don't feel like that's something that is right in front of you right now. Uh, Nevertheless, this psalm is important to us, and this is an important thing to hear because surely trials will come. Surely the time will come when you are so frustrated at work as the liar is continually promoted while you slave away. God, how is that good? Uh, The times will come when the things, uh, the people who we love are taken from us. Uh, My spouse, my parents, my children. When those times come, Uh, Do I have the means to deal with the doubt that will sprout up in my heart? Uh, Maybe this morning, maybe unbeknownst to anyone, you are beyond doubt and you are in utter denial of God. You deny Him. Uh, Let me beg of you, listen this morning. Uh, This psalm is not going to answer every single question you have, but it is going to present a roadmap of what it looks like to move from doubt in God towards faith in Him, from doubt and towards faith. If there's one thing to write down this morning, if you're a note taker, if there's something to walk away with, I know you have the kids page, that thing that said, you know, what's the main point? This is it. Write this part down. It's this. The path from doubt to faith is based in our heavenly refuge. The path from doubt to faith is based in our heavenly refuge. And we're going to explore that idea in three points this morning. You have them in front of you. The nature of doubt. What really is doubt? The nature of reorientation. That's a big word. We'll talk about it. And finally, the nature of our heavenly refuge. Let's follow our psalm writer, Asaph, this morning. Let's step into the beginning of this psalm, our first point, the nature of doubt. If you look at verse 1, Asaph opens, and he gives this disclaimer out the gate. He says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, This is a familiar way to step into a problem or a complaint. He gives a disclaimer. I know that this is true. And then what does verse 2 say immediately? But, but as for me, but as for my experience, what I am saying, God, I know you are good to your church, but when is COVID ever going to end? How many times have we said that? Truly, God, you are good. But what is happening in my life? He says, verse 2, Asaph, I had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. God, you are supposed to be good, but what is happening to me? I am struggling. I am in toil. And Asaph begins to open up for us his case for his doubt, why he doubts. And what we're going to see about doubt is that it is very rational. There are reasons, real reasons, that we doubt God's goodness. His doubt is so rational. It's also very personal. The way that he engages this, especially through song, is so personal. 
What do I mean by it's rational? Look at verse 3. He outlines his case for why he's doubting God. You are supposed to be good, but looking at myself, what is going on, God? How are you supposed to be good? And he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. God, you're supposed to be good. You're supposed to be just. Meanwhile, I am falling apart. And what happens to the people whom bad things should happen to? The wicked, they are prospering. That doesn't sound just, does it? That doesn't sound like how things are supposed to go. He compounds his pain. He compounds his case. Verse 4, they have no pain. They get everything they want. Verse 6, what kind of people are these? Pride is their necklace. Violence, their garment. Uh, The type of person who wears violence upon them, who is truly violent, good things aren't supposed to happen for them. And yet that's what Asaph sees. I love this line as he approaches verse 11. The wicked, they say, is there knowledge in the Most High? These people are mocking, does God even care? Meanwhile, the sorrow in Asaph's heart Does God even care? Does he care? So Asaph draws a natural conclusion. A very natural conclusion in verses 13 through 16. All the day long I have been stricken, rebuked every morning. Uh, Following God, it feels like it's been pointless. Why aren't I just living like the wicked? God, you aren't looking really good to me. I'm not seeing the promises that you had for me. Can I really trust that you're true? Can I really trust that you're good? And he acknowledges in such a human way that saying these types of things, it sounds treasonous. That's what he means in verse uh, 14. As he steps through all the day long, I have been stricken, rebuked every morning. Verse 15, if I had said these things, if I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Uh, Saying these things out loud, am I allowed to do that? Am I allowed to do that? And yet that's my experience. That's what I see. Asaph, in verse 16, he is so worked up and beaten down when I thought to understand this. It's such a wearisome task. Should I just give up? On a human level, that makes so much sense. It is so rational. And it's incredibly personal. If you take a quick glance through the text, look at all the pronouns. I, they, I, they. The way that Asaph sees what's going on, it's very uniform in its perspective. It's very linear in its perspective. When you see things how he does, uh, how he as a person does, you understand what he's saying. It's so personal from this orientation, from seeing things this way from me to them, of course I'm doubting. It's so personal. The nature of his doubt is so personal. It's so rational. Uh, What does Asaph need? He needs to be reoriented. 
Asaph needs to be reoriented. His perspective needs to shift away from this and towards something else. Let's step into that second point. What is the nature of reorientation? What does reorientation look like for Asaph? Well, when do things begin to shift for Asaph in this passage? It's verse 17. Put your head in your Bible. Look at this. This is the hinge pin. I was worn out, God. I was so weary until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Uh, Some dramatic shift happens for Asaph here. Uh, Something incredible happens, and it is not that suddenly his circumstances radically change. It's not that the persecution he feels disappears. No, what happens is his perspective shifts. He's reoriented. That's a big word. What does that mean? Uh, Think about a picture. Think about how a camera takes a picture. My brother and sister-in-law were recently moving, and uh, something that people like to do when they're looking at different houses is they go on Zillow and they scroll through all the different pictures. They come over to our house, they pull up Zillow, throw it up on the TV, and they're showing us all these different houses, the pictures of houses that uh, they've visited, that they've seen in person. And as they are scrolling through the pictures, per the nature of my brother, there is always commentary. There's always something he has to add. And the commentary on every picture is this, as we scroll through. Oh, that room looks really small, but it's actually really big. Once you get in there and you look around, you see it's, it's actually really open. Or the vice versa, scroll to the backyard. Oh, that backyard, they made it look really big. It's actually so narrow. It's, it's deceptive, uh, that picture a little bit. Now, what's true about these pictures? Uh, they're real pictures. They're not doctored up. They're not fake. Uh, But what's the problem with them? Uh, These pictures see something. They see something in a particular orientation. Let me get myself a little slack here. Uh, These pictures see things in a particular orientation. They see things in one perspective. But when you actually step into the room, the real room, and you look around and you reorient yourself, you begin to see things that way, you understand what they wholly are. Uh, Those pictures weren't fabrications, but they didn't give you the whole story. It's not until you step in that you really begin to see things for how they wholly, really are. Where does that reorientation happen for Asaph? He enters into the sanctuary, verse 17. He enters into the sanctuary, and he sees things What do we know he sees there? Well, physically, physically, Asaph is going to see sacrifices. The sanctuary, the tabernacle, this is where God's sacrificial system was in place for his people at that time. And that system is designed to show them something. It's designed to demonstrate to God's people that God is near to them. That God is near to them. How? Through sacrifice. Sounds a little weird. What happens at the tabernacle? People show up. You could imagine Asaph showing up. Imagine if you did. Uh, You would step in and you would be somewhat uh, sensually 
thrown off, what you would see, what you would smell, what you would hear, these animal sacrifices. What's going on with them? This is a system that God uses where God's people can come and the things that cause them to feel separated from God, far from Him, their sin, their wickedness, their sorrow, their shame, those things are taken off of them and they're put on an innocent animal. Those things are put on a beast and God deals with them there. And so now those things which caused God's people to be far from him are gone and they can feel close to him. Uh, the idea of sacrifice might sound primitive, might sound crude to us today, but the image of what God does in that is so beautiful that those things which cause his people to feel separated from him, they're dealt with no more. So Asaph can be close to God. That's what he sees physically. What does he see spiritually? He says in verse 17, Then I discerned the wicked's end. What happens to wickedness? It's put upon that beast and it is slaughtered. It is dealt with. Asaph, as he steps into the sanctuary, gains a divine, eternal perspective. One where he's no longer jealous of the wicked because he sees what will really happen to wickedness. He sees its end. Surely they will fall to ruin. Uh, wickedness invites destruction and terror. Asaph sees that's not something I need to envy or desire, is it? No, this divine perspective shows us something different. And Asaph begins to realize something about himself too. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, God. As he is reoriented to understand the broader perspective, Asaph realizes something about himself. I was brutish. I was like a beast. He sees the beast. I was like a beast. What does it mean to be like a beast? Uh, my wife and I recently adopted a beast into our own home, a little puppy. His name is Iroh. He's the sweetest, cutest thing in the world. I know you all think your dog's cuter. It's not. We'll argue about it afterwards. I'll show you pictures, multiple pictures. You'll, see, you'll be reoriented to understand what I mean. Uh, but when you bring a new puppy into your home, he's eight weeks old, you can imagine how terrified he must be. Uh, entering into a whole new world, everything that he's known is gone from him. Uh, all he's brought with him is this little blanket and uh, this blue cord that was acting like a collar that was tied around his neck. Those are the only things he has. And that collar, that blue uh, rope, had gotten to the end of its length. And what do we know about puppies? Uh, puppies grow. Iroh's still cute. He was cute. He's still cute. Puppies grow. And so what do I realize pretty quickly as I look at him? I need to get rid of that collar. I need to get rid of that piece of rope. And I reach in to do that. And what does he do? Uh, like a little puppy, he begins to nip. He begins to bark. Don't take that from me. How, what are you doing? Get away from me. He doesn't understand that this little collar that brings him some level of comfort, uh, that thing's going to be the end of him. If I never get rid of that, uh, that collar will end this puppy. He doesn't know that. He's a beast. He barks. He nips. Get away from me. 
what does Asaph realize about himself? God, I have been like a beast. As you step in, as you work, I bark, I nip back. I have been brutish towards you. How arrogant is it for us to think that we know what is best for us? Uh, to think that we know what is really just, what is really good, how things should really work. Ed brought up Job. This evokes that image from Job 38 where God comes before him and says, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, do you command the mornings to rise each day? Should you contend with the Almighty? Uh, who are we in the face of an all-knowing God? Uh, compared to God, Asaph has been like a beast. Uh, how often do we respond that way, thinking we have a higher reason? We know what's best. We know how things will truly end. Uh, friends, we don't. We don't. God does true justice. His perspective is genuinely divine and eternal. And as Asaph enters into the sanctuary, his, shift, his shifting perspective realizes this. Uh, what's the power behind that, though? Uh, what is the end of this? How does this result? What is that kind of reorientation empowered by? It's this, point number three, the nature of our heavenly refuge. The nature of our heavenly refuge. What does Asaph finally see? He sees that God is gracious. Uh, the God who he thought had abandoned him to slip and fall has done nothing of the sort. All while he was brutish and beastly, where has God been? Right beside him. Look down in your Bible at verse 23. Read this along with me. What does Asaph realize? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? He thought God had abandoned him. No, God has been holding his hand. God has been leading him. Uh, at the end of days, God will deliver him into glory. How is that possible? How is that possible for Asaph? How is that possible for us that we who are beastly can be near to God? What did Asaph see, did we say physically, when he stepped into the sanctuary, into the tabernacle? He sees beasts being sacrificed. And we said those represent the way that God deals with sin, with shame, with sorrow. How is it that those things are dealt with? What happens? God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to be the true sacrifice. Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. He is righteous 
at the beginning of the psalm, God, you are good to those who are truly pure in heart. Jesus is the one who is truly pure in heart. And yet, what is his end? He's sacrificed like a beast. He's crucified. Uh, because the blood of lambs and goats could never take away sins. They represented that, but how does it really happen? By the blood of Jesus Christ, the true sacrifice shed for us. And it's by that grace, by that sacrifice, that we find forgiveness, that we are drawn close to God, that we begin to understand who is for us, who is for me? My God is for me. It's by this grace that we are gifted with faith. That's what Ephesians 2 is talking about. God raises us up with him, places us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And what is that faith? It's a gift. It's a gift that he gives us through the death of his son. When we want to cry out in doubt against him, how is it that we can be brought near to him? By the blood of Jesus Christ. By the blood of Jesus Christ. How is it possible that we can move from doubt in God to faith in him? It's because of that blood and the heavenly refuge that it provides. That's why Asaph closes this way. He says in verse 28, As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God, what? My refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Asaph no longer swims in doubt. Uh, he's no longer saying like at the beginning, God, are you really good? He's saying, God, you are good. Let me proclaim of what you have done, of your deeds. Friends, the Lord is your refuge. As you ask his spirit to reorient you, you can begin to proclaim those wonderful things, can we not? So what does that mean for us? Uh, that path from doubt to faith, how do I move along that as I begin to doubt God's goodness? As those trials, those temptations approach, as I begin to say, God, are you really true? Friends, would you come to the sanctuary? Would you come here on Sunday mornings? Would you come here and worship him as we are now? And as you approach, ask the Spirit to reorient you. As you step through these beautiful pieces of your liturgy, as you are reminded every Sunday, God is for you. Would you let that rule in your heart and remind you He is true, He is good. As you approach the sacraments, which I know we're not doing this morning, but as you do, remember uh, we no longer come into a sanctuary where we sacrifice bulls or goats, uh, but we do have a sign, a seal, something tangible that reminds us of the sacrifice made for us, the Lord's Supper. As you take that, what is it? It is 
Jesus Christ for you. He is for you. He's yours. He is your refuge. Hear his word preached. Enter the sanctuary. Confess your doubts. Admit them. Engage with one another about them. That you might be reoriented here amongst God's people towards the goodness that he has for you. Be reoriented. Trust that he is for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach you humbled how, humbled by how in spite of our failings, you draw us near. You draw us, Father. Uh, we ask that your spirit would comfort the hurting and the doubting who are here. We ask that your spirit would reveal your goodness to us, that it would comfort those, uh, those of us who are in pain and lead us by the hand reorienting us to see the glory and grace that is found in the cross. Help our unbelief, Father. Help us to remember Jesus Christ, who by his death and resurrection has secured our heavenly refuge. Help us, Father. It is you who provide this for us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.